Hello listeners, and it is Christmas week. So for this week, for the holiday season, I will be publishing a new episode every single day, including Christmas Eve. And today's episode is Elena Pastori, who will be talking about career readiness and her own experiences of leadership. And still to come later this week, on Thursday the 22nd, my guest will be former polar explorer from the UK, Sue Stockdale. And then on Friday the 23rd, I'll be chatting to customer relationship and leadership expert, Patty Mara, about how to future-proof a business. And then finally, on Christmas Eve itself, Saturday the 24th, I'll be joined by staff retention expert, Rory Berry, who, among other things, is a big fan of Lego and learning through play. This one seems so apt for the occasion as well. I hope you all enjoy listening to these as much as my guests and I have enjoyed recording them. And in case I don't get the chance later, have a great Christmas and all the best for the new year. Hello and welcome again to the Leading with Integrity podcast. Thank you for joining me again today. Career development and personal development is something we've covered before in this podcast, but today's guest is an expert people development strategist, which I think is an excellent job title. We'll be hearing more about that later. So I'm pleased to welcome Elena Pastori of Alan Ator Leadership and Career Coaching. Today we're going to be talking about all things leadership as well as career development career preparation, career planning, if you like, and how to spot the good companies to work for and avoid the toxic ones. Welcome to the Leading with Integrity podcast. Leadership Talk for the Modern Manager, with your host, David Hatch. Elena, thank you so much for taking the time out to to join me today. I'm I'm guessing it's fairly early where you are. It's 8.30, so not too early, but a little on the earlier side. Yeah, depends whether you're one of those 5 a.m. people or not, I suppose, doesn't it? I am not one of those 5 a.m. people. (laughs) No, me neither. Definitely not. I I don't know anyone who is, but I suppose they must exist. (laughs) Oh, yes, they do. I know a few. (laughs) Oh, really? Okay. Tell us a bit about yourself and your career background and and how you got to where you are today and why you do what you do. Yeah, my name is Elena Pastori, and I'm a leadership and career coach. I also like the title of people development strategist because I love to develop people and really at the core of what I do is developing others in some way, shape or form professionally. So um, I always joke that my whole life, I never knew what I wanted to be when I grew up. And, you know, when, when other kids say, oh, an astronaut or, oh, you know, all these crazy things, I really never knew. I had no idea. And it was when I was almost graduating college that I I knew I liked help. Well, I always knew I liked helping people. And I just didn't know how that would translate into a job other than a teacher or something, I guess, really, you know, something basic. I wanted to do something that was a little bit unique. And, you know, graduating, I went to grad school, I worked at a startup, I did, you know, all these things. And then I realized coaching was a job and how coaching is different from consulting or advising or mentoring or training and all of those things. And, you know, the pandemic and just a number of things happened. And two years ago, I decided I'm going to start my own business and I'm going to be a leadership and career coach. And so I work with people of all ages, all backgrounds. I work with individuals. I work with teams. I work with groups. Um, I do do some trainings and, um, you know, larger scale events and things like speaking, things like that as well. Um, I really, really love when I'm able to work with clients long term and really see and champion and empower their growth and development professionally. Because we spend so much of our times at work and I really believe that there's a job out there for everyone that everyone can love and wake up being energized to go to every day. And so that's why all of the work that I do is really revolving around how can we get a person in a position that they like doing work that they love um, and really feeling empowered every day. 
two years in business then what what's been your biggest challenge in in starting that company and how did you get over that as well the biggest challenge really for me was psychological it was dealing with the vulnerabilities and you know the areas of feeling exploited and I, I think probably everyone that owns their own business or goes off on their own and does their own thing probably experiences this in some way, depending on who you are, what you do. For me, I think a lot of it had to do with my age. And I would always speak about what I did in future tense. So I would say, oh, I'm going to start a business or, oh, I'm going to be a coach or I am going, I'm, I'm going to do this thing. And that implies that you're not quite there yet. It implies that there's something you need to do to, to be there, but you're not there. And when you speak about it in that sense, no one wants to hire you or work with you when you are basically saying, yeah, I'm not there yet, right? So the hardest thing for me was to say, I am this. I have this business. I do these things. I provide these services. I help people in these ways. Um, and once I get over that hump, that was when I, I really started to embody, you know, being a coach and doing the work that I do. So that was really, truly the hardest part. Yeah, the mindset one does come up a lot, actually. I think a lot of people, and there's, there's quite a big adjustment as well, particularly if, if you spent a certain number of years or longer in, in a previous career working for other people, just that kind of change from working for others to working for yourself is it's a real real big shift i think mm. and a lot of people struggle with it well i never really had an, a normal full-time job <laughs> after college i worked at a startup and i worked at another small business and it's really a def a different environment than a normal nine to five um you know the startup world is just very dynamic but what are the, I guess, most frequent responses that you hear from people when you ask that question? Yes, yeah, it's, it's similar things. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, startup, even startups, you know, small businesses, it's still, there's a big difference between working for other people who've got a startup and then doing it yourself. Right, um, right. I know that from my own experience as well. Yeah, a lot of variations on kind of that psychological mindset. It's, it's the answers we get learning about the best way to work for myself, learning how to lead myself before I lead others. Um, mm -hmm. That, like that kind that. of theme comes out a lot. Yeah, learning how to lead myself first. I like that a lot. I haven't heard about it. I haven't yeah. heard it phrased that way. So what kind of people do you work with? Do you have like a an ideal client, I suppose, or someone facing a challenge that you want to help with, for example? I mean, as far as age, most people just, I think naturally that I work with are in their... Um, probably 30s, 40s. Um, as far as problems, people really come to me for a couple of main problems. One is um, lack of growth in their company. So whether they feel like they've maxed out their growth or they're just feeling stagnant for whatever reason. Um, and the other reason is usually um salary goals not being attained and or toxic work culture toxic environment so those are the three big reasons why people i think just seek out or at least in the two years i've been doing it those are the three biggest reasons that people have sought me specifically out and those are problems that of course i solve because you know growth I say, okay, well, where do you want to go? Where are you not growing? Where you want to grow? What do you want to grow into professionally? And not just looking at what position do you want, but do you want to manage people? Do you want to work in an individual contributor role? Um, does the industry matter to you? You know, all of those things. Um, and then salary, of course, we can work on that with negotiation skills. And again, uh, taking a position that's that next level up for that high responsibility and then the toxic workplace or toxic culture um, a lot of people really i think don't consider the factors of looking at a company usually when they apply to jobs they type in a specific job title or they say oh i want to do this position 
Um, and then the company is kind of a secondary thought. So what I tell people who have really um, specific things that they're looking for in a culture or in a company or in you know an environment is I say, okay, well, let's look up companies that embody these things you're looking for first and then see what openings they have, see what positions they have that might interest you. So it's kind of flipping the normal process on its head um, so that you can get better results for what it is that you need in a workplace. Um, so I think that's probably the biggest thing that people don't really consider and that I, you know, tell everyone, even if that's not a main um, pain point for them is, you know, hey, you should really give more consideration to the company rather than just finding the company as a result of finding the position. So um, that's a big area that I think people can really pay more attention to. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. And it's it's one of those things where if if you don't do that going in, by the time you realize that you've made the wrong move, it's kind of too late. <laughs> yeah. I mean, are there any kind of red flags that you would look for then when you're considering companies to work at or that you'd recommend people watch out for? So it's, it is hard to tell mm. on just a job description what that company's culture is like. So I say rather than what red flags do you look for, I would say what green flags do you look for? Because a red flag might not necessarily be able to surface itself in the job search. A green flag, I think, is much more noticeable and easier to find. So for companies that um, have on their, you know, their website, their social media, you know, whatever materials are out there on the internet, companies that really champion their employees, talk about, um, you know, the, the type of precedent they want to set and the type of environment that they foster, usually they make that very clear. So I worked at, um, I interned in college at an insurance company called Amica Insurance in um, Rhode Island in the USA, which is actually the very first insurance company in the country. They used to be so exclusive that you had to be recommended by a customer in order to get insurance from them. So I think, you know, there's not like that anymore, but I think rather than looking at that as an exclusive type of thing, I kind of look at that as they really want to vet the people that they are working with. But anyway, when I interned there, they, I could memorize, I, I could almost summarize it now, but not quite. They had us memorize the mission, vision, values, they taught us about culture. They had us do a project on the company culture and how we as interns could embody the company culture. And so they did all these things. And it's very pertinent, I think, observing their website and their you know social media and everything that they are a positive workplace because just of how they talk about their values and how they live those values, and they make it very obvious. Um, toxic companies... There's an absence of that, yes, um, but you don't necessarily see, you could look at an absence just as a neutral ground, but you don't necessarily see the negative of that online. So I think when you're in step one doing your research, look for the green flags. When you're in the interview process, look for the red flags. The red flags will be made more clear when you're actually in the culture, whether you're physically in the interview in the building um, at the company or just on Zoom, I think it becomes more pertinent and the green flags do as well. Um, and this is where candidates can really take the opportunity to ask good questions at the end of their interviews to say, oh, you know, what, for example, what adjectives would you use to describe this workplace? Or what, how would you describe the culture? You can ask those questions to really learn about, is this an environment I want to be in? And is this an environment that's going to foster my growth? If you're in an interview where there's multiple people interviewing you, see what the dynamic is like between those interviewers. Is it cold? Is it friendly? Is it open? You know, can they joke around with each other? That, that can tell you a lot too, just by observing that as well. Yes. And also, I guess you can sort of, learn quite a lot from the questions they ask you during the process as well sometimes that can give you some pretty good hints yeah <laughs> definitely yes yeah, it's, it's a different world probably to when i was last looking for a job but um 
think you, from what I read, you get the sense these days it's it's almost more important that the candidate likes the company than the other way around. Yeah, I mean, it has to be mutual. And um, yeah. that's something I really struggled with as a college student. I was a terrible interviewer. Terrible. Terrible. Because I talk a lot. <laughs> I would just go on and on and miss the point of whatever question they were asking me. I think I've improved um, since then. I think I still can, you know, <laughs> improve. But um, at least I think for people, you know, like myself when I was in college or, you know, anyone really that's looking right now, I think there's a lot of sometimes feelings of desperation or that I hope they want me, right? I, I hope they want me. I, I hope they give me this offer. It really should be a, a mutual fit. And it's much easier for me to say that than for someone to go out there and, and find a company where the candidate's interviewing the company as much as the company's interviewing the candidate. And I truly believe that. It's just that a lot of times the mindset that candidates approach it is out of desperation or out of what will I do if I don't get this offer or I really need to get this offer. I need to do anything I can to impress them. Um, and that does become evident. And, you know, we don't want to hire people that are desperate. So I think really working on those interview skills is super important, not just how you respond, but also how you ask those questions and how you are as a candidate are intentional with the questions that you're asking. Super, super important, all of that. Yeah. So with things like the great resignation and now this this quiet quitting, do you see kind of that big shift more in favor now of job seekers as opposed to companies? Do you think they it's a bit of a, a cliche word, but do you think they have the power now as opposed to fully being at the mercy of the people paying the salaries? That's an interesting question. I hate to use the word power, but if I were to Yeah, me too. Sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I guess um, influence or, yes. you know, who has the bigger influence? I would still say the company has the bigger influence because especially if it's the big companies like Google and Amazon and, you know, they I think they always will. Um, I think the smaller companies, you know, really small companies and restaurants, maybe, let's say, I think are more at the mercy of the candidate. But yeah, I, I, I think it certainly depends. I do think candidates are being more demanding. Um, and I and I have, you know, a positive representation of demanding when I use that word, um, which I think can be good and bad. I think knowing your value is is the most important thing. And knowing your value without having an inflated head about it, Although from what I've seen with my clients, it's usually the opposite. Usually they don't give themselves enough credit. Usually they they think they deserve less or they ask for less or they go for a position they're overqualified for. So I would say normally it's the case that people do need to ask for more rather than there being too many people that are asking for too much. And I think it's good that that people are kind of stepping up to the plate. And I do think one of the reasons why we have a big wage gap between um, men and women is because men off the bat are much more inclined to negotiate and ask for more money up front um, than women are. And just statistically, um, you know, men, you know, to the dollar make more than women. And I do think it's because women are not asking when men are and then just from the baseline that sets men apart for you know the following years of your career when you have a higher foundation of course you're going to continue to to grow at an accelerated rate compared to women so that's another conversation but just the idea of candidates asking for more i think is good i think at the end of the day companies are the ones that say yes or no um and accept or reject any counter offers or negotiations so um, yeah, I, I think it's really all about putting more balance to the whole system. And I do think more balance is what we're after during this period of the great resignation. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Yeah. And sadly, yes, I agree with you on the, the men versus women comments as well. I think part of that, I think, is because of the way men are kind of conditioned in the workplace. Like it's almost expected that you're going to yeah. be ego driven and you're going to demand more than you're probably worth. 
Mm-hmm. And that, you know, whereas I think women, it's it's a very different situation for them in the workplace. They have to work a lot harder to prove their value as opposed to just ask for it without any evidence like many men seem to get away with. Yeah. And yeah, I totally agree. And I don't think it's anything. Um, I, I do think it is how we're conditioned. There's this book called um, Brave, Not Perfect, and it's by this woman, Reshma Sujani. I hope I said her name right. She founded Girls Who Code. And I haven't read her book, but I did hear her speak. And she gave a speech. And she says, um, we teach girls growing up to be perfect, and we teach boys to be brave and courageous thinking the example of when a child falls on the playground with a boy, a parent might innately say, Oh, you're fine. And with a girl, they might say, Oh no, are you okay? You know, are you hurt? Are you bleeding? And not that we intentionally do these things and I'm not a parent. So I, I guess I can't say we, but we as people, (laughs) not that we intentionally do these things, but, um, and, and I don't necessarily think you can compare and contrast brave with perfect. I think those are two words that, you know, but her point that we innately treat boys and girls differently growing up, I think has these long-term effects on us in the workplace that come out in some of these ways that now you and I are talking about. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it that way, but yeah, you're right. I, I was thinking more in terms of the way that the average kind of workplace rewards different behaviors to different genders. Mm-hmm. I mean, leadership is the classic example, you know, one of the big mm-hmm. questions that's been debated and it's come up in, with previous guests I've had as well about why are there kind of more male managers? Why are more men in management positions, even if they are pretty bad at those jobs, when there's so many much more capable women who are not getting those jobs? And I think part of it is that a lot of companies and this kind of traditional idea of leadership, they associate what are actually quite negative traits with leadership. So like the the arrogance being perceived as confidence is the classic one. And that that's something that on the whole, men are more likely to exhibit than women are in the workplace. And so that's why they get rewarded for that, even though it's actually potentially quite a negative thing to have in a leader. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it all becomes kind of self-fulfilling, doesn't it? And it's all a bit, bit of a nonsense, really. But <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, there's a fine line between arrogance and confidence anyway moving on um, <laughs> so one of the other phrases i've heard you talk about and, and i know it came up i think on one of your profiles somewhere when we were arranging this was about career readiness and i thought that was quite an interesting phrase so what is career readiness what does that entail i guess just the idea of of being ready to jump into your next career move whether that is just getting a promotion and kind of sticking along the path that you're on, whether that's switching careers altogether um, or whether that is um, getting the same job or similar job that you have at a new company. So the idea of switching companies, staying at your same company, and if you're switching companies, are you doing a career change altogether or are you just looking um, to continue on the same path that you're on? So I work with clients in all of those realms. Um, I really enjoy working with clients to change careers altogether because a lot of times people get into the wrong career. Um, They suppress something that they know that they love and that they'd want to do, but they choose to go after something else, whether it's to... um, you know, fulfill expectations of parents, spouses, siblings, etc., or whether they feel like they can't make money in that field, so they just suppress it, do something else, and then it it comes back up, and they are unhappy. So I love helping people find, explore, and um, accept a job in whatever that passion area or skill set is that they should have pursued and never did. That's really exciting for me because a lot of times people just simply feel like it's not possible. Um, people tend to think that if they've been in a job for, you know, or been in a specific skill set area of expertise for 10 years, sometimes even five years with my younger clients, they're like, oh, this is the end of the road. I can't do anything else ever because I've done this for five or 10 years and I have to do this for the rest of my life. 
And that's so not true. No, I can confirm. Definitely not true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, people pigeonhole themselves. And yeah. we spend so much of our lives working, right? And I'm sure you've heard this and listeners as well. We spend so much of our lives working. So why are you going to choose to do something that you know you don't like or that you know something's out there that you like more? It just is crazy to me. And I want people to love their lives and not live for the weekend. And usually the area that can have um, that, that we, I don't want to say that we should change, but usually it's career is the one that people know they need to change and don't. And I want to be a part of that. It is very easy to get stuck in a rut, I must say. I mean, oh, yeah. I mean, I spent 10 years in, in the same company. Like It wasn't even that I kept doing the same thing in different places. It was literally the same company. And you, I, looking back, I don't know how I managed to do that. Like, it wasn't intentional. I didn't plan to do it. It was just kind of... Well, this is comfortable. This is easy. I can rely on the paycheck. It's not the most exciting thing I've ever done, but it pays the bills. And and you blink and 10 years have gone past. <laughs> yeah, I think comfort is comfort is the biggest thing that can lead to complacency in your career and you know in other areas of life as well. Um and even even when you know that the grass can be greener or that you know you should move on it's the comfort of knowing what to expect even if it's something that's not so great because we as humans like to be all knowing to the best of our abilities and we like to be able to predict and we like to know what's going to happen and there was this very interesting quote that i read um just you know, a month or so into COVID when, when the world shut down and it said it might've been an, an HBR or a New York times article or something, but it said, there's a certain level of predictability in this world. The sun will rise. The next day will come. And so many other things that we believe to be true or would exist that COVID just totally pushed to the side and said, nope, not today. And I think based on this article and just my own thinking is that we try to predict or we try to understand or find reasons because we find comfort in having the answers. And, you know, and that goes really deep. And I think that that is a huge reason as to why, why do we stay with what's comfortable? We know it's not the best because it's predictable, because we know what to expect. Um, and something else might be worse. This might not be so bad after all. Yeah, fear of change. Going back to what you were saying earlier as well. So there's obviously this, that cliche out there, isn't there, where if you, if, you, um, if you do what you love, then you'll never work a day in your life. On the other hand, if you start making the thing you love also the thing you do for work, are you not eventually going to end up hating it instead of loving it? Where do you fall on, on that argument? What do you think? This is interesting. So this is where I will go back to what you said in the beginning, which is you need to lead yourself before you lead others. The good thing sometimes about companies is there might be clear boundaries related to work. Or, you know, when you sometimes when you stop working, when you start working or um, you share a lot more responsibility with others when you work as for someone else, when you work for yourself, it all falls on you and it's on you to set those boundaries to um, delegate responsibility, whether it's delegating it to yourself, um, delegating it to your to do list or however you choose to do that. and. I don't necessarily agree that if you do that you if you do what you love you'll never work a day in your life. I do stuff that I don't want to do all the time. I I hate accounting. You know, I hate invoicing. It's just so boring to me, but I I have to do it unless I hire someone. Um and I'm not at that point yet. Nate, hopefully one day I will be. 
Um, I think doing what you love means not that you never work or never do things you don't want to do. It just means that you get to do more of what you love or you get to be really fulfilled. Um, we all have things that we don't, you know, house chores, cleaning, right? There's always going to be things in life that we don't want to do. And I think work falls into that. So that's what I have to say about, about that. But, and yes, I, I do think to your other question, I do think we can come to resent ourselves or the thing that we love when we mismanage it or when we don't know how to set those boundaries. We don't know how to do those, you know, delegation tactics and things like that. So um, I, I think it's hard. It's really hard to figure out what works for you and to figure out what that balance is. Um, so I think, yes, you, you must figure out how to manage everything or you, you may begin to, you know, resent is a strong word, but I think for some people, yeah, that, that does happen. It's important to, to set your boundaries and to have your ducks in a row. Yeah. Yeah. So both then I think is summary of your answer there i think i'll probably agree with you as well to be fair it's um it is about the kind of the managing the business side of it and it's i don't know i kind of think it's it's all worth it though for having that kind of for me anyway for having the freedom to be the one who decides what the business is going to do yeah what's the best thing then about what you do what, what's your favorite part of of your business developing people and, and seeing the change in them um it can look like lots of different things for different people. And um, I was actually just talking with some colleagues last week about the idea of requiring results. And someone said, I don't like that because, you know, a coach or, you know, whoever can't always ensure or guarantee results on behalf of the client or the person they're serving. And I said, well, I said, results can look very different for different people. If you have someone that is an extremely high performer, really great at what they do, and they just want to get that next promotion, the result for them is going to be getting that promotion. And that is pretty easy, pretty linear to see. If I have a client that is extremely in the weeds or very down, they have no idea how to get out of their situation. They really are you know, not happy with where they are in life that promotion or that job is so far away from where they are now. So a result for them is just to even switch their mindset and to get them thinking about the possibilities and open them up to what a better job could look like. So I work with clients in, in both cases and I have to treat them very differently. So one of them, they might get that end result immediately. The other one their results along the way are really just progress. So I think we need to look at progress as a result rather than, you know, a, a step to the result um, and giving more credit to people in those situations. So um, especially the people that are really down and really in the weeds, I love when they say, you know what? Yeah, maybe I can do this. For me, that's a huge win because it's getting them to think so differently about their situation and see it differently. And until someone sees their situation differently, they're not going to behave or take the steps they need to take to get the goal that they want to get, the job, the life, whatever it is. Yeah. So I would say it's it's really fulfilling to see the light bulb go off, to see their face light up, or even just to get an email from someone saying that they did something or, you know. To be there, to be there when it's happening, or to hear about it after—that's, um, that's what really makes me feel like I'm, you know, I'm doing the right thing. I'm in the right line of work. I mean, coaching as a, a kind of a profession gets can get quite a bad rap sometimes. But actually, you know, where it is really great is particularly for the people who are stuck down in the weeds and they're in that kind of negative tailspin. Is getting the benefit of that external point of view, someone who can look at it impartially and who's not kind of facing the emotional struggle of going through it at the same time. And right. it, it can be very valuable. Yeah. It's, it is crazy how, you know, what goes on up here mm. is everything. Indeed. Let's talk about leadership for a bit then, because 
that is after all the theme of of the podcast. What are the biggest leadership lessons that you've picked up so far from all the people you've worked with and all the places you've worked? I think one of the biggest things, well, it's kind of twofold. So I think one of the biggest things is not understanding each other's communication styles. The leader not understanding how to communicate to people they lead and then you know the people being led don't know how to communicate to their boss or the person that's leading them um within that transparent communication um and really being clear i when i say transparent communication i don't mean telling people what's going on every minute of the day i mean being open about why decisions have been made what factors were considered and you know why ultimately making a decision that hasn't made was the best one um at least that was the biggest thing that i noticed when i started holding leadership positions and started interacting with other people um colleagues and things like that in leadership positions is that people get really upset when you make a decision on their behalf and they don't feel like they understand it. Worse, they don't think it's the right decision to have been made and they don't understand it. Then it's like a recipe for disaster. Trust is broken. Culture deteriorates as a result of trust being broken. And so when people say, you know, leaders set the culture, I truly believe that that is true because everything you know really comes from the top and it's not necessarily what decisions you make or or it's not about the what it's about how are you communicating it how are you showing them that you're acting in their best interest and and those things um something that's been very interesting for me recently as a leader is um i just hired my first part-time people which is very exciting but also challenging to say okay it's been a while since i've really led anyone truly in a constant management type of capacity so i said you know i got to make sure all this stuff i've learned since i last was leading people that i can you know hold my own essentially and um it's been hard for me to i guess hold back or refrain from correcting or advising or recommending things based on the way i would do them Um, And just really leaning into the fact that there's multiple right ways to do things. And we all know this, right? There's our way isn't always the the one right way or the best way. Um, But for me, after kind of not having led people for really three years and now being in a management position again, three years when I was, you know, getting my business up and running, it's it's hard to say, you know what, if they don't do it the way that I would do it, that's okay. They're learning. There's multiple right ways to do things. And I have to appreciate that I've taught them and I've trained them and I've mentored and coached them to do it right in their own way. And I have to be okay with relinquishing that control and saying that they can do just as good of a job um, as me, especially because I, I trained them and I taught them. Yeah, from from the standpoint of just general management and leadership um, of a team where you don't necessarily have done, you didn't necessarily do the same job that the people you're doing are doing to also the viewpoint of I'm having them do things that I used to do and being okay with um, people doing it differently. Two interesting concepts there, I think. Firstly, is when you talk about transparency and that, that's such a massive challenge for leaders and managers. And I think it's it's getting that balance right between avoiding kind of the worst case, which is where people think you're hiding something from them and you're actively not sharing information with them. And then immediately they will assume the worst. They'll assume that you're, I don't know, maliciously making decisions against what they want and you're trying to put them out of a job or whatever. Right. Um, but at the same time, you don't want to tell them absolutely every single thing that happens all the time because they don't need to know that. Nobody needs to know everything, uh, despite what people may think. Um, mm-hmm. I've been there where I thought I needed to know everything and I was totally wrong in hindsight. But <laughs> Yeah. Um, and then it, it very much links to the second thing, which is trust. And that's exactly 
what you're talking about you're, you're taking on people again and you've got to kind of relearn how to trust the people that you've trained and trust that they know how to do it and that they're going to produce it to an acceptable standard mm-hmm. and then remembering that trust is a two-way street you need them to trust you and that's where we come back to transparency and it, exactly. it's, it's all kind of links together nicely doesn't it it does are you familiar with Brene brown heard the name okay. yes yeah. she has this um she you know she talks a lot about vo- vo- oh my gosh vulnerability <laughs> and shame and things like that and um she said she talks about trust and vulnerability and she says most people think one cultivates the other but it's really the opposite of what people think it was very interesting how she talks about kind of that cycle and that dynamic of how can you build vulnerability and trust on your teams and with your people and in your relationships because um that is really how you build strong connections and strong relationships is when you have those two things. Um, and you really do need them at work, at home, you know, every, and every facet of your life. So I love her. I think she has a lot of great nuggets of wisdom to related to all of this, but yes, vulnerability builds trust because when someone sees that you're vulnerable, they'll say, Oh, wow, this person is being open with me. I, I barely know them or, you know, so that makes me trust them because they are not afraid. Trust builds trust, doesn't it? So, you know, if, if you're a leader and you're trying to build trust within your team, you have to trust them first. Um, mm-hmm. And it's a two-way street. It's, it's reciprocal, all those other cool words. Um, yeah. This philosophy that you start at 100% and you trust people until they give you a reason not to. Or you, you know, you could use that with any word. Give someone that 100% until they give you a reason not to. So always um, assume positive intent of others, um, whether it's, you know, you are the leader and someone on your team maybe did something that you are not sure about, or whether you are the person on the team and then you, the leader did something that you are not sure about. Because um, really what it comes down to is, I believe that we all do have positive intent and that none of us you know, normally intentionally will be malicious. I think in most cases, people truly mean well. And if we, if you and I have totally different ways that we communicate, you can take something that I did or said and interpret it in a way that I totally did not mean it to be. But if we don't have the trust, if we don't have the strong communication and we don't have a good relationship, um, that can happen. But sometimes if we do, and you do know me well, you might say, I wouldn't have done it that way. I wouldn't have said it that way. But I know Elena or I know David. And I know that based on their track record or their their character, that they probably meant this in this way, even if the words really weren't the best or the decision, you know, whatever it is, wasn't the best. So, so I think that's another, another really important thing too, about just assuming positive intent always, um, unless that person gives you a reason not to. That's the real trick, isn't it? Is because on paper that's a great, great approach, but it's it's what are the standards to reduce that percentage? Like, is it they said kind regards instead of best regards in the email? That's <laughs> it. They've lost ten percent trust now, um, or does it have to be something worse? Like, do they have to run over one of your pets before you look the trust over? For well, example? that's extreme. It's, um, yeah, but it's it's setting the standard, isn't it? What are the what are the acceptable criteria? Um, and I think, yeah, different people have different standards for that. So, yeah, which actually sort of leads quite nicely into the next question, which is, what's the biggest mistake that you've ever seen a leader make? Probably lack of self awareness. As in, in the form of a mistake, I would probably say not taking the time to build self awareness and or not taking the time to understand the implications that your words, actions, and behaviors have on others. And that can just lead to a huge plethora of problems, especially depending on how high up you are in the organization, um, you know, depending on um, how many people are below you, how many people you're, you know, the number of people you're impacting, um, things like that. I um, was working with an organization where it became very evident to me very quickly that one person thought these these this group of people here need the help. The 
people that this one person was leading. These people need the help. These people need development. These people need all these things. Speaking to those people, they seem fine. And then after doing some more research and, you know, learning about the leader and some of that leader's attributes and traits, okay, this leader thinks they're the problem, but really this leader doesn't understand what they're doing and how they are um, perpetuating or almost creating a problem with the people they're leading because they don't believe in them because they don't give them a responsibility. And, you know, they're saying that these people aren't stepping up to the plate yet. They're not providing an environment for those people to step up to the plate. Um, And that was at a, a decent sized organization. So it's, it's interesting to see how, Again, I, I really think the psychology piece, the trust, communication, self-awareness, all of that um, is really where I think a lot of these things stem from and a lot of leadership opportunities are derived from. So definitely lack of self-awareness or lack of understanding, you know, how you affect, whether in a positive or negative way, the people that you're working with, that's the biggest mistake. Empathy, emotional intelligence piece as well, as you say, mm-hmm. is understanding, you know, what impact you're having on others, how they might be feeling about things. Self-awareness, I mean, there's a hilarious story that I always like to tell, and I have to anonymize it every time. But So there's this company that shall remain nameless, and there's a senior leader in this company, and this is a perfect example of self-awareness, right? So on, on a Monday, let's say, uh, many years ago now, all of the management team gather all the employees around and say, Bad news, everyone. The company's running out of money. Uh, we're going to have to be looking at redundancies. Um, such and such senior leaders in charge of that. That particular leader didn't show up to that meeting. They arrived four hours later. It was about two o'clock in the afternoon. And they showed up to work in a brand new Ferrari. Parked it in the staff car park. Everyone heard it coming. Everyone saw it. Where's the self-awareness there? It's just such a brilliant example of what you can do <laughs> so badly wrong. And such yeah. a great example of self-awareness failing someone. Um, and then also, of course, lack of empathy. You know, people have just been told the jobs are at risk. You showed up in a £100,000 car or whatever it was. No no emotional intelligence. How is this going to impact people? <laughs> yeah. And yet in their mind, they probably thought this was a good thing to do because it shows everyone it's not that bad after all because, look, I can afford this car. You know, so going back again to what you're saying, probably didn't do it maliciously. That's where ignorance comes in. You know, to what extent is ignorance acceptable? And, you know, you don't know what you don't know. However, I do believe there comes a point where ignorance is just simply not acceptable. But that's also a very gray area. And, you know, it goes on and on and on. Yeah, I guess when it's willful ignorance, when you know that there's something you don't know and you don't do anything to address that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if you don't know, you don't know it, as you say. I mean, can you really be blamed for that? In this story you told, I guess I would say, yeah, that's totally not appropriate. But in what world did this person think it was appropriate? You know, I don't know. We'll never know. It's a funny story anyway. It is Maybe not for people who are there, but I think it's funny in hindsight. <laughs> I do too. I do too. <laughs> okay, let's change tack then and get a bit more positive again. What is the best thing you've ever seen a leader do? Generally speaking, I would say when leaders empower, give autonomy, and appreciate, I think I would say are the, the three things. Um, so by empower, I mean give the person that they're leading the skills, tools, and resources they need to succeed and um, allow them to truly believe that the leader believes that they can achieve those things. Appreciation, whether it's in the sense of, you know, financial compensation, you know, oh, giving, giving out a raise or just simply saying, hey, I see that you did this and I really appreciate that. Or, you know, calling out specific skills or specific things that the person did that are positive. Yeah, I think those are the most powerful things that a leader can do for the people they lead. And I also think it cultivates back to what I talked about in the beginning of why do people leave their jobs? Because they don't have growth. 
And I think if you have all those three things, you have appreciation, you have empowerment, and you have autonomy, you will have growth. So I think that, you know, again, a leader so much does impact the experience that the employee has. And it can be a stark difference in a positive or negative way from what all of the other employees in the company are experiencing because of that, you know, the way that leader particularly leads. Um, and so just to kind of bring it full circle, um, when you have those things, you can have growth. And when you have growth, you have an employee that's fulfilled and that wants to be and stay where they're at. So what advice then would you give to a new manager who's leading people for the first time? I would say to make sure that you step beyond your skill set of the tangible work. You know, normally people get promoted from being a contributor to managing the people that are doing that job. Um, And they think that just because they have that skill set that they can manage. And really, those are two entirely different skills. So I would say, obviously, hold on to that expertise that made you successful in your contributor role. Um, And also, you know, do some leadership uh, development for yourself, whether you are able to get a coach for yourself, whether you're able to seek out a mentor that has successfully made that transition already, whether you read some books about management, read some or watch some videos, listen to some podcasts about leadership. Um, maybe take some personality tests to help you kind of get there and start with something. Although personality test is definitely not the end of the road. It's just a great way to help you dig up some of that stuff that you may not recognize in yourself. Um, and then one of my favorite things, which I think is very obvious, but that a lot of people just don't do is ask your people what they need. How do they like to be led? Do they like more of a direct approach? Do they like little direction? And they just like to go out and experiment. Um, I think that directly asking your people what they need from a leader and what they need from you will allow you to not guess um, and to just know what they need and to just do frequent check-ins and um, make sure that you are being what those people need because really being a leader is not about being able to tell people what to do. As we all know, it's about serving the people that you're leading and making sure that they can be successful and championing championing their success. 100%, yeah. Responsibility of the leader has to be, it's creating that environment for success and that absolutely has to factor in, you know, what what are the best ways of working for each individual member of your team. Right. Leadership Heroes. Well, we're on the last question, and this is always the most difficult one, and I will always get people complaining about it, but that's kind of why I like asking it, if I'm honest. (laughs) (laughs) So it's called Leadership Heroes, and basically I, I ask you to pick one person, alive or dead, you know, past, present, fictitious, real, whatever you like, really, who would, in your opinion, perfectly embody leadership. Mm. or at least as close as possible while still being a human <laughs> and, and then explain why you picked them. Okay. Yeah. So usually when I'm asked questions like this, I always say my dad, which just sounds kind of cliche or my mom, depending on um, the question, but I'm going to say my dad for this one. Um, so he passed away when I was eight and he was a banker and a politician and um he was i don't know how it the government kind of works in the in the uk where you are but in the us you have city council presidents and you have mayors and lots of other things too but that's on a very small scale and so my dad was the president of the city council and my mom told me that he always wanted to run for mayor but that he never did because he wanted to be home with his family so me and my siblings and he prioritized that first and he said that if he were to run for mayor and become mayor that that would take away family time and that he valued family time um more than you know holding a specific role in the community and so to me i think that's really good leadership because Jobs are obviously very important, right? I wouldn't be here if I didn't believe jobs are important because that's what I do is I help people find jobs and I help people to excel in the jobs they have and be leaders in the jobs that they have. Um, 
although your job isn't your whole life, and I believe that the familial and relationships and the friendships that we have are, you know, the core of our existence and maybe not the core of our existence, but I think that those are truly the most, the most important things are those types of relationships. And I think that my dad was a great leader in that sense that he was not afraid or willing to put work on the back burner in order to show and actually act on what he says is the most important thing in his life. So. Well, that's a good choice. Yeah. It's, uh, you'd be surprised actually quite a few people pick parents. So it's, that's kind of it's always I know. nice to I hear. I bet about. they do. <laughs> it's always nice to hear. It's either that or like Roman emperors or something like that. So. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I might start asking, insisting on it, be someone you've actually met. Maybe that makes it more difficult. I don't know. But anyway, um, no, it's a really nice example. And I think, yeah, I mean, there is so much to be said for that kind of sort of the the softer side, the the less obvious side of leadership, where it's leading by example in the way of knowing what your priorities are, having those straight, and then honouring those priorities. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you'd be hard pressed to find anyone, I think, who wouldn't say family and friends come first before work, uh, depending on their family situation. I suppose it's not the same for everyone. Um, right. But then how many of those people actually do live that? How many right. of those people do say to work, no, I'm not doing that at the weekend because that's my family time? Exactly. Probably not that many people. Um, yeah. Depressingly. Right. And yeah, it's true. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think the only real question left is if you'd like to point the listeners to your website or give them a way to get in touch with you if they want to learn more or maybe work with you. And, of course. Yeah. Yeah, so you can find me on LinkedIn, Elena Pastori. Um, my email is Elena at elenapastori.com. And my website is elenatorecoaching.com. And I'm happy to chat. If anyone has questions, is intrigued about anything we discussed today and wants to talk more or share their thoughts, happy to do that. And of course, I would love to work together as well if any of you have a need and see a fit. So Thank you so much for having me today. I had a really great discussion with you, so I really enjoyed our time. Likewise. And yeah, great. And I'll put put all the links and everything in the episode description so people can find it easily as well. And uh, yeah, great. Oh, and to answer your question earlier about how politics works in the UK, I think it's probably fair to say right now, not very well. <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> So just to recap, if you would like to get in touch with Elena, you can reach her on the website, email address and LinkedIn profiles. And I'll put all three of those in the episode description notes so you can find that easily. Hope you found that conversation useful. We covered a few different topics to some of the normal leadership discussions we have on here. So hopefully that was helpful for you as well. If you'd like to learn more about leading with integrity or get in touch with me, again, you know the website details, but they will be in the episode description too and also start putting my LinkedIn profile in there so feel free to reach out on there as well. Hopefully you've heard by now but I'll repeat it just in case I am launching a brand new online live training course for new leaders, first-time founders, people who need support with their leadership, perhaps facing issues like quiet quitting, staff disengagement, perhaps you've got retention problems from the great resignation or perhaps you're just stressed about getting the most out of people in these increasingly difficult economic times when it has become so much more important. So if any of that sounds familiar, the Leadership Starter Kit Live is the new course. It is available from January. You can pre-purchase now, you can enroll now, and we'll start in probably the middle of January, second or third week. We'll see how we go. And in celebration of my own company's third anniversary, which has just passed um, towards the end of last month, I will be offering a 50% discount on the first 10 people or learners who enroll on this course. So if you want to learn more, the website for that is www.leading-with-integrity.co.uk forward slash free webinar. And that will take you to a page where you can register, funnily enough, for a free webinar. That's about 40 minutes. It will give you a bit of an intro to my approach to leadership, the Leading with Integrity system or method. At the end of it, I will talk a bit more about the Leadership Starter Kit Live and give you the opportunity to sign up for it, 
we're interested and have a call with me and we can go from there. So again, the Leadership Starter Kit live. It's leadership training, it's improved, it's online, it's interactive, and it is live. And act quickly if you want to get that discount. As I say, only the first 10 people will qualify. So I hope I'll be speaking with you soon and I will see you either at the webinar or on the course. Hopefully both. And that's all I have for this episode. Thank you again for listening. And remember, be a leader, not a boss.